You're listening to devpath.fm, the podcast about career development for software engineers. Join the conversation at www.devpath.fm or on Twitter at devpathfm. Hey everybody, I'm here with Taylor Otwell today. Taylor is best known as the creator of the Laravel framework. Taylor, you want to say hello and talk about what you do? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me on. I'm Taylor Otwell. Uh, I created Laravel, which is a PHP web development framework for um, you know uh, sort of modern web applications. So it's sort of like the Ruby on Rails for PHP uh, equivalent. And I created that back in 2011, and it's open source, and I've been maintaining it ever since. Cool. What really like led you to the idea of building a framework like that for PHP? Um, at the time, I was working in Fort Smith, Arkansas, for a company called Arkansas Best Freight, and I was doing .NET enterprise applications, both on desktop and on the web. And I had a few side project ideas. I wanted to launch my own business so I could kind of work from home and set my own hours. And I needed like a really productive platform to do that on in terms of a web framework. Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't really know Ruby at all. um, So it was hard to get into Rails, but I had some prior experience with PHP. So I started tinkering around with some of the PHP frameworks out there and um, eventually kind of built my own using experience I had from .NET and different patterns I learned there. And then also combining stuff from things like Ruby on Rails and Sinatra and Python frameworks and stuff like that and, and put it out there. So, I mean, basically it was a way for me to launch my own business ideas faster at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, Taylor, do you mind sharing how you actually got started with technology and like building software? Yeah. So growing up, I was kind of always interested in computers, um, like in middle school and high school and stuff. And then I actually went to Arkansas Tech University and majored in information technology, which was um, quite a bit of like computer networking, hardware, and then a little bit of programming, but not really a ton. Like I had a couple semesters of C++. Um, I think I had a database administration class and maybe a web server administration class or something like that. And then um, the rest was kind of uh, networking and hardware. And after that, um, companies would come to Arkansas Tech and like interview um, graduates in, in the IT majors, like computer science, information systems, and information technology. And I didn't really anticipate becoming a programmer, actually, even my whole way through college. I thought I would be kind of like a computer networking support person or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, I interviewed for this programming job at Arkansas Best, and they, you know, invited me to come on and sort of went through six months of training on on their end. Uh, once I got there, they put every new hire through six months of programming training just to kind of teach them, like, teach you .NET, teach you ASP, teach you COBOL, J- JCL, mainframe stuff, all of that, because it's an old business with a lot of code, I mean, dating back even to like the seventies that are still mm-hmm. running a production. So they kind of get you up to speed on all that. And that's where I really sort of cut my teeth in terms of programming. Cause I got so much, um, real world experience there so fast. Um, yeah, but that's kind of the, that's kind of the beginning of my programming career, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interestingly, Taylor and I are both in Arkansas and I also worked for a transportation company. When I first started, I worked at a 
as an intern at JB Hunt. So I'm I'm familiar with legacy systems. Uh, yeah, definitely sure. have some COBOL laying around up there. That transition from working on those legacy systems and in .NET and for a transportation company, what pushed you into wanting to build your own products and your own projects? Um, a lot of it was just kind of wanting more freedom and stuff. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, like programming is kind of interesting because the sky is really the limit in terms of how much, how much money you can make from it and, you know, kind of what you can do with it. And anyone, any one programmer really, um, can sit down and build something, a prototype or an MVP or whatever, and put it out there and just something crazy can happen. You know, I mean, we all, there's all these, like, of course there's like unicorn stories like Facebook mm-hmm. or something like that, but even just smaller stuff, you know, projects like Basecamp that's just started by a couple people is, you know, making tens of million dollars a year. Um, so it's, re- I think it's just really interesting, um, you know, how, if you put your mind to it, really anything can happen in this field. And so that was always really intriguing to me. And I wanted to kind of like take my shot at that, I guess. And that's why I started tinkering around with all these other ideas. And like some of my first ideas were just really simple, you know, just like little invoicing software and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Basic app ideas that probably every programmer has tinkered around with at some point. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so for me, it was just kind of just like the limitless possibilities were really intriguing. And then once I went down that path, though, the interesting thing thing that happened is like the whole foundation that I had built for building those things sort of turned into the product itself, which I didn't really expect. You know, I thought I was kind of building this framework to help me build these other things, which would kind of become my career. But instead, the framework itself sort of uh, became that, which is kind of weird. But Mm -hmm. anyway, it worked out well. And, you know, it's just it's kept going ever since. Yeah. What was that experience like when you because I, I don't really know the history of Laravel. Did you build it in the open or did you build it privately and then open source it? And and what was the experience like when it started to gain traction? Yeah, I think I built the whole thing pretty much privately at first, like in terms of, you know, from day one, my first commit, um, I think it was just on like a private Bitbucket or maybe private Google source code repository or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I wasn't really building it out in the open and like gathering feedback all the way through like that. That's not really how it went. So I kind of built it all myself. Um, and I was kind of using my own ideas to sort of dog food it and make sure it had the right features and, and felt mm-hmm. good and all of that. And then once I had it pretty much finished, I felt like it had a, a chance at maybe gaining some traction in the open source world. But for me, I felt like it, the main thing that would you know, make or break it was the documentation. So before I launched it, I wrote a ton of documentation for it um, because a lot of the other frameworks at the time in PHP, at least um, some of the main ones were like code igniter, which had really good documentation. Um, and I felt like that was something that gave it a really big competitive advantage against all the other new frameworks that were coming out. They were just like not very user friendly, not very documented. Mm-hmm. And so I put a lot of time into that. And once I put it out there, I just tried to spread the word, you know, on different like programming websites. Um, there was a website at the time called Forest, which isn't around anymore. Um, you know, just like Reddit and programming boards and stuff like that. And it wasn't like a massive explosion, you know, a popularity from day one. Um, but, you know, there was I had a little forum set up for Laravel and I would be in there every day, you know, answering questions, getting feedback on features and stuff like that. And, um, you know, it wasn't like a hockey stick growth curve, um, but it mm-hmm. just sort of kept growing year after year. And eventually we started, you know, running conferences for Laravel. Um, 
after about a year and a half and you know now those have gotten pretty large but yeah i mean it's pretty crazy i never expected it to be as big as it has gotten yeah i mean one of the first things i notice with the framework is is how user friendly just the documentation site is and then looking at like laracasts and stuff and seeing that that's I, i've known about that platform you know for a while and then not having been a php developer just because it's a great example of how to build like a teaching platform mm-hmm. so yeah i think the the accessibility is definitely there yeah and i think laravel has been kind of lucky in that sense to where we've had really good people around the ecosystem that have kind of boosted it up so like at the very beginning, before Laracast, there was a guy named Dale Reese in the UK who wrote a book called Code Happy, um, and it was about it was sort of a thorough introduction to Laravel and all of its features, and uh, it was just a really good book. A lot of people bought it, and it helped sort of like introduce a lot of people to the framework. And then after that, Laracast came along and was just you know took that to the next level, and there was really no other. PHP framework that anything like that. And there still wasn't until really just maybe about a year ago um, Mm -hmm. that had its own sort of dedicated video teaching platform. You know, the closest thing was kind of like Railscast, um, Mm -hmm. which it kind of petered out even back then. I think it was, it was kind of done. Um, And then we've had other people come along um, like Adam Wathen is a guy who's wrote a test driven Laravel course. There's been a lot of really good material put out about Laravel, which I, I feel like, whichever framework has sort of the best resources for getting started and onboarding people usually becomes the most popular, um, not just in PHP, mm-hmm. but just in other languages too. Um, and so Laravel has been really lucky in that way to where we've had really talented people that have sort of boosted up that whole ecosystem over the years. Yeah. Would you say that, that as the maintainer, you've had a lot to do with building that documentation or facilitated it or, is that something that your community has kind of done without your prodding? Uh, for the documentation, I still to this day write it basically all myself. Like we accept, mm-hmm. um, we accept pull requests to the documentation on GitHub. So it's all open source. And of course people contribute, but like I write the vast majority of the, the documentation that's on the Laravel website right now still myself. Mm-hmm. Mainly because I think it's nice to sort of have all the documentation read in one voice and it doesn't end up sounding like a thousand people worked on it where if you're just mm-hmm. merging sort of every random pull request without sort of refining it and revising it, it will, it would sound just like really weird to read through the documentation. Like all the styles wouldn't be the same and all of that. So I still put a lot of effort into that myself. And then, um, you know, but all that stuff like Laracast and all the other resources are sort of all community driven. I don't really have any official connection with any of those things. Um, business wise, they're all just sort of community projects. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious just to try to extract some advice from this story. Um, what, what's your advice for someone who wants to come in and contribute to open source or build their own thing in the open? Well, as far as building your own thing, I think it's important to sort of dog food your own or kind of scratch your own itch, you might mm-hmm. say, where um, it's hard to build something that has like mass utility and value if you're not experiencing the problem you're solving yourself Mm -hmm. um so sometimes people will like you'll see they want like a startup idea and they'll sort of just go searching for like a problem to solve and i've kind of been in that boat too and i think it's a really hard way to operate and you end up with not really a great product because you're not really experiencing the pain point yourself whereas everything Mm -hmm. i've tried to build 
was solving a problem that I had personally. So Laravel itself was that way where I needed like a productive framework for building web apps. Um, and then sort of my first businesses like Laravel Forge um, is a server provisioning service. And, you know, it exists to solve a problem that I had at the time where I was having to provision a ton of PHP servers all the time with bash scripts or whatever else, just kind of like taped together. And I wanted to automate all that. And so when I built Laravel Forge, I was kind of solving my own use case in the same way with everything else I've pretty much ever done. Um, all works that way. So if you're trying to launch your own thing, I think that's number one really is that you are experiencing the problem yourself and then you know exactly what you need to do. And it's sort of win-win because you're solving your own problem. So that's great. And then if other people use it, you know, that's just sort of the cherry on top. Mm -hmm. um, so you really can't lose either way. Um, the second thing I think that's really important is to not let negative feedback sort of get in your head too much because there will be like quite a bit of negative feedback for anything you do <laughs> in the open source world. Really. Um, there's always going to be people that, you know, still to this day, everything I ever release, you know, there's a handful of people that are like, I don't understand why this needs to exist. Or, um, <laughs> you could just do it this other way by, you know, networking four raspberry Pis together and doing this in your basement, <laughs> you know, like there's always people that are just going to operate that way. And mm -hmm. so you can't really let it get in your head. Like you just have to kind of stay, focused on your mission and sort of what you're trying to solve. Yeah. Um, those are kind of the two main things that stick out like over the years um, that I would, that, as sort of the two main pieces of advice I would give to people. Yeah. So kind of to follow up on that, if somebody was looking to, to get involved in, in your project, where would you point them? Um, there's a couple of different easy ways to get started like helping out with Laravel. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, one of the easier ways is actually the documentation itself because it's all just sort of like text files. And, um, if you're new to the framework and something doesn't click for you at first or seems hard to understand, it's a great place to go contribute because, you know, you're coming at it with fresh eyes that a lot of times it's hard for us to have, you know, that have been using the framework for so long. Um, we sort of have blind spots as to like what's confusing, you know, or what is not intuitive because it, it's just like, you know, we're kind of a fish in water, so to speak. Um, mm. Then there's also just like in the same vein, you know, when you're getting started with Laravel, if there's any like what I like to call paper cuts, so to speak, where it's like little annoying things about the framework um, that are, make it hard for you to get started. I think those are great things for people to try to contribute fixes for or solutions for, because again, they're coming at it with fresh eyes. Um, they can see things that I can't see. And so I think that's a good way for people to get started and, you know, maybe contribute some little fixes and kind of get um, some momentum going and then you can kind of work your way up to bigger stuff. Yeah. I want to also kind of touch on something you mentioned, the the negative feedback aspect of building in the open. Has that impacted the the way you work or have you ever felt something like this idea of imposter syndrome as a result of that feedback? Um, yeah. Like it affects me. Um, it's always hard, you know, when you work so hard on something to see people just like trash it or whatever. <laughs> um, so, I mean, for me, like it just makes me like mad at them. I, don't, I wouldn't say it like makes me feel like I have imposter syndrome if they trash Laravel um, because like I experience sort of like what Laravel can do every day. So like I know it can be valuable for people, but it's hard not to let like negative voices get in your head. And, mm -hmm. you know, I just want to like lash out at them on Twitter <laughs> or online or whatever. <laughs> But, you know, like a lot of it is you just don't know what other people are going through, you know. And one thing I've learned is like a lot of people that talk 
negatively, like about your open source project are going through like really rough times, like in their real life or like, you know, they have serious problems or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you can't take it like too personally um, because you don't know what's going on, like on the other side of the keyboard for them. And I think you just have to kind of stay focused on what you're trying to accomplish and not let it bother you so much. Like that's way easier said than done because, you know, you can get a hundred good comments and like three bad comments, but those three bad ones will definitely stick out in your mind um, Mm -hmm. for sure. And like, there's been times where, you know, like even after work, I'm just like sitting, having dinner and just like ruminating in my head, you know, about like some stupid things someone had said on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, I think it gets better like over the years for sure, but just because you've seen it so much or like you've taken so much of it mm-hmm. um, that it kind of rolls off you. But I think with imposter syndrome, like I think you're always going to have that. And I've had that when you're launching your own thing because you just don't feel qualified really. Um, you know, who am I really to put out my own web framework? Of course, I don't understand everything about um, how the internet works or the best you know, pattern for every problem or, um, you know, I've never worked at somewhere like Uber. So like, what would I know about like scaling web applications or something like that? So sure, there's always going to be, um, some of that. And I don't know what the best answer for like solving that is. Um, I think you just kind of got to press through it. I mean, most people probably deal with something like that. And, um, if, if you don't like, it's maybe a, a worse sign <laughs> if you just have, <laughs> if you just totally are so, you know, confident in yourself or like overconfident that you never feel like you're sort of underqualified. That could be a problem too. How did you develop that skill set and that ability to kind of be a technical leader? Was that something that you stepped into naturally and it fit, or did you have to learn those skills over time? Um, that's definitely a learning process. I wouldn't say it was like a natural thing I fit into. Um, that's actually one of the hardest parts about open source is sort of trying to be this leader and steering the project and, um, sort of curating the features that go into the project. And it's all sort of a learning process over the years, but, um, still to this day, it's really probably the hardest aspect of maintaining the project is like, um, determining what should actually be included in it from like a leadership point of view and sort of being Mm -hmm. that curator, because someone can come along on GitHub and contribute a pull request and you know it's just not it's not something you want to include in the framework it's not something you want to maintain Um, maybe it's too complicated or just like not very elegant or whatever and you have to say no to that that's still to this day like one of the hardest parts about maintaining an open source project for me is just turning down things or like turning away people's contributions um, because it's just like no fun for anybody and it's not fun for them because, you know, obviously they worked on this thing that they thought was valuable for the framework and contributed it. And then it's not fun for me because I feel like really bad <laughs> saying like, uh, no, no thanks, basically. Um, so that's kind of, I don't know, I still haven't figured out a good way <laughs> to deal with that. And we've tried mm-hmm. various ways of dealing with it um, in the framework, but it's just hard, you know. Um, and then, you know, people can get mad or upset about that. and it can be hard to keep your cool, but it's it's just, again, a learning process and it takes years to sort of get better and better at it, but I still haven't perfected it, but hopefully getting a little better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My, my own experience working on that core team of a, of a much smaller open source project of a different magnitude, but uh, large enough to, to have kind of that experience uh, is generally people don't 
turn away pull requests because they don't appreciate your work or because they think your code is bad necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's that the maintainer has to maintain that. So yeah, exactly. you might be lining up some really unpleasant work for that maintainer. If you do something that's against the grain or, or inherently weird. Yeah. And like, even right now, like I've got a pull request sitting out on Laravel where this person wants to change some behavior in the framework. And we're sort of having to wait on the person who contributed the original code to like clarify why they did something, you know? So now mm-hmm. there's like a roadblock. That's something people don't really get at first. <laughs> I don't think like they think, <laughs> Oh, why not just, uh, you know, merge it in? What's the big deal? But really as soon as you merge it, like you said, like you take ownership of all that code, like for eternity, basically. <laughs> and so you sort of have to weigh it you know, do I really want to be responsible for this? Because even if the person contributing it says like, oh, you know, I'll be around, I'll help you maintain it. Like a year down the road, that person might not even be doing PHP anymore. You know, mm-hmm. I've, we've had situations like that where we had people that were very involved with the framework, but then they changed jobs and their new company uses, you know, I don't know, Haskell or something. And, you know, they're not interested in PHP anymore. And, they can't come back and really help you <laughs> maintain any mm-hmm. of that. So I always just have to assume that I'm going to be the one maintaining it, no matter what anyone says. Yeah, I think uh, I think it was actually at Little Rock Tech Fest last year. I heard uh, one of the speakers say that uh, open source is free, but not free as in beer, free as in puppy. It's like once you've adopted it, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. your problem now. Yeah, it's peeing everywhere. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm curious uh, in, with respect to your career at this point, would you say it's something that you are like happy to have done and would recommend it to others? Or is it something that you would caution other people before they take that direction with their career? Oh, well, I'm definitely happy, you know, that I went down this road because I've like met people and experienced things and been places like I never would imagined, you know, been mm-hmm. all over the world speaking about Laravel, met people from so many different countries and heard like their stories and how Laravel benefited them. So yeah, I'm like very thankful that I went down this road and I would encourage anyone, like if they have a, you know, a dream to pursue it, just go ahead and do it because you never know what could happen. And again, like it's a win-win, like you're going to learn something in the process. Um, Even if the project doesn't take off and become something huge, you're going to gain so much like experience and knowledge just from building it that Mm -hmm. it's just going to be really valuable for your own career. So I don't really think there's a, a huge downside, um, you know, I guess there there could be uh, situations where you write some library that's like it gets popular, but there's no glamour at all involved, <laughs> and you like you just like have to maintain it forever. But I don't know. I've really enjoyed it, and I think it's a really cool way to interact with a lot of people you would have never met from all over the world, um, which is really cool. One thing I'm curious about because you know we're we're in the same state, uh, we don't live on the West Coast, we don't live in San Francisco. Uh, has has your geography affected kind of your participation in that world at all since you live kind of away from the tech hubs well i think it keeps me focused a little bit to an extent like Mm -hmm. you know there's not constantly meeting meetups to go to or conferences to go to or stuff happening um and you know here in arkansas i'm very much just like you know a nobody just a normal person (laughs) um that no one knows you know does anything on the web or whatever really Um, So I think it's actually just kept me pretty grounded and focused to where I live this very normal sort of quiet life here in Arkansas. And then, you know, a couple of times a year I get to travel to a conference and, you know, meet a thousand people or or whatever and talk about Laravel. And it's really exciting. But I think for the most part, just having this sort of quiet daily life is just really nice, actually. Um, 
This helps me stay focused on the framework. My life doesn't feel too hectic. You know, mm-hmm. um, I can just kind of do a regular eight to five job and, and sort of be done. Um, so it's really nice from that perspective because I feel like if I was in a big tech hub, um, you know, I'd constantly feel pressured to like go to different tech stuff or meetups and just would be busier. And I don't think that would really, I don't know, it just wouldn't really be my style. I don't think. What's your advice on like building community when you're not in a tech hub in terms of like a lot of people say that if you move to Seattle or San Francisco or Austin, any of these areas where there's a lot of developers, it's kind of like, um, I think the general analogy is moving at like light speed or warp speed because the people around you are propelling you in your career. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you've missed out on that? And, and you know, if not, what's kind of your strategy for keeping up to date with stuff? Um, so I think there probably is some truth to that because I knew, I know like when I worked with other people and I really like working with people that are, you know, like further than I am in programming skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like that's when I sort of learn the most and get better the quickest. And so I do miss that actually quite a bit. Um, even though I really like remote work and kind of working here by myself, um, there's just something about sort of having like an in-person community of developers that just helps you learn a lot faster. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but other than that, I think it's really helpful if you can find, like for me, I have a couple friends that I can just pair program with online and look at problems with or bounce ideas off of. So I think if you do sort of work remotely in an area that's not a tech hub, that's a really nice thing to have if you can find somebody like that. I don't know if there are any websites that sort of try to link people up in that way, but um, mm-hmm. that would be kind of cool. But so I do that some. And, um, as far as like building an open source community, not in a tech hub, I tried to be like really involved at the very beginning, especially with like answering questions personally on either the the chat system we were using or on the Laravel forums or whatever. Um, because I couldn't have like a lot of meetups or a lot of in-person stuff going on. Mm -hmm. Um, so I always tried to be really personally involved and sort of accessible to people, um, in open source, I think people really like that because it makes them feel sort of like more a part of the community if they can just sort of reach out and talk to the main person that's that's in charge of the project anytime. Um, so mm-hmm. it sort of gives them this closeness to the project that sort of makes them feel connected to it. Um, and in turn, like, you know, it just makes them want to participate more, I think. Um, so, yeah, I think that's really important if you're starting an open source project in, in terms of building community. And then in terms of your own like personal community locally, Finding someone to pair program with, I think is really cool. Um, I don't know. I just think pair programming is actually really, really nice. And I would actually wish I did it more because you just make progress faster. You learn things faster. Uh, your code sort of like improves because you have someone else to bounce ideas off of. I just think it's all around like a, a cool idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing that I've seen the Gatsby project does that I really like, they they have a, a Twitch stream where... Uh, Jason, the the kind of head developer advocate person, like pair programs on some kind of JavaScript and usually Gatsby related thing uh, just over Twitch. And so people can watch them pair program, which I think is really cool. Yeah, that's really cool. I would like to get into some of that um, eventually, too. I think Twitch is really cool for developers. And I've seen a lot of um, I haven't seen a lot of Laravel developers using Twitch, but I've seen that sort of like growing in the JavaScript world and and sort of other languages, I think that would be a really cool thing for the Laravel community to explore. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just a really cool way to learn stuff. Yeah, so I kind of want to backpedal a little bit and talk more about kind of your career. Um, And that period between working in the enterprise space and now 
in the open source space? What did your career look like? How were you supporting yourself? So I launched Laravel in 2011 uh, while I was still working actually at Arkansas Best. And Mm -hmm. about six months later, I got an email from a PHP or a company that uses PHP called Userscape and they built help desk software. And they wanted to rewrite like some of their software and uh, the founder, Ian, had seen Laravel, which is kind of intrigued by it and was wondering if I was sort of looking for new opportunities or whatever. Um, so I came on board with them and accepted that. And I worked there for three years. And actually, like I wasn't making any money directly off Laravel for several years. Mm-hmm. Um, so like from 2011, when I launched Laravel to like 2013, I think I didn't make any money at all on Laravel. So it was not really sustaining me in any way, except sort of this indirectly getting me this job uh, that I was working at. And so in 2013, I wanted to try to sort of like capitalize on Laravel business wise a little bit um, because it was getting pretty popular. And so I actually wrote an ebook um, on Laravel and put it out on Lean Lean Pub, kind of self-published it and made a decent chunk of money to where like it gave it made me feel like a little validated for spending mm-hmm. some time working on Laravel, but it wasn't enough to where like I could quit my job and sort of maintain Laravel full time. Um, and then in 2014, the next year is when I sort of first had this idea to build my first real like SaaS application on Laravel, like a subscription service called mm-hmm. Laravel Forge, which is what I mentioned where it like provisions PHP servers for you, installs PHP, and it can do that like on DigitalOcean and Linode and Amazon and, and whatever. And so <clears throat> I built that like in my free time after work and I was staying up until like, you know, one or 2 a.m. Um, <laughs> a lot of nights hacking on the side project. And it probably took me like six months or so to build. And um, <clears throat> I launched that at Laracon 2014, uh, which was in New York City. We had a couple hundred people there and um, it was about may 2014 i think and pretty quickly like it surpassed the amount of my salary at my regular job so like at that point mm-hmm. i sort of reached a crossroads um where i have this project where i'm making more money than my regular job i'm having to do like customer support on it like it's not <laughs> going to be sustainable forever you know to work both of these places and so mm-hmm. about 6 months later um january 2015 is when i went uh, full-time on Laravel. January 1st, actually, uh, was my first full-time day working on Laravel. And I was making uh, money from Laravel Forge. That was kind of how I was supporting it. And, you know, that's kind of what I've been doing ever since. And I eventually launched other businesses to sort of supplement um, that income. I launched something called Laravel Envoy, which was a zero downtime deployment platform um, for PHP. That was again, a subscription service. And then I launched a couple of, uh, sort of one-off purchase products like Laravel Nova, which is an admin panel for Laravel. And then, uh, Laravel Spark, which is sort of everything I learned building Forge and Envoy as these subscription services built on Laravel. I sort of packaged it into Laravel Spark. So it sort of gives you scaffolding for like subscription billing and invoices and all of that into sort of this one product that you can buy and use to launch your own, uh, businesses with. And so that was, again, a one-time purchase. And now just, you know, a few weeks ago, I launched uh, my third SaaS application, Laravel Vapor, which is a serverless deployment platform for Laravel. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my products have been actually like all in the same sort of like wheelhouse um, where they're all sort of Laravel and deployment related and sort of, um, you know, or just to help you launch your Laravel projects faster. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's kind of what I've been doing. I brought on a few employees like in 20, 
maybe 17, I brought on my first employee and then I brought on a second one the next year. And now we have a third one that we brought on this year. Um, so it's me and, um, three other people and they're all, we're all distributed. One's in Egypt, one's in the UK and one's in Belgium. Hmm, very cool. Uh, so it's been a pretty crazy, you know, just since 2015, really, when I went full time, a lot has happened um, even since then. Personally, I have kind of an entrepreneurship bent. So like I'm interested in, in ways to make money outside of just being a software engineer. Um, I think that's important and valuable. And like, it's a very viable way to build a living for yourself. But I also like have some authority issues and like tendencies to want to be in charge of my own stuff. So yeah. Uh, yeah. And once you get a taste of that, like it's hard to go back. For yeah, sure. for sure. Well, and so, so I'm interested in like those first steps when you talked about writing, you know, that, that ebook, you know, mm-hmm. what, what led you to do that? What was that like? Um, and do you have any advice for people who want to make content like that to make a living? Yeah. So I, I did that after, um, Dale, the guy in the UK wrote his ebook and he made like a hundred thousand dollars on this mm-hmm. ebook, I think. And so it was just like a, a monster ebook launch at the time. And, um, I, his book was sort of an introduction to Laravel. And so I sort of had this idea, well, I could sort of supplement it with sort of a more advanced take on Laravel, sort of like the next step, so to speak. And so that was what kind of sparked the idea for me. And I know he had done well and um, Laravel had a pretty good audience. So I sort of saw that, that sort of opening and jumped in there and wrote that. And I think it made like 65 or $70,000 that first year. So, I mean, it made a, a real good chunk of money for me at the time. It was a lot of money. And, um, there's sort of low risk, you know, like something like an ebook or like even like a video course or any kind of like info product like that, I think is a great thing to launch because mm-hmm. there's very little customer support at all. Um, so it's easy to launch and then also continue with your full-time job without being too distracted. Um, and there's not a, really a lot of upfront costs except your time. Mm-hmm. So I think... So it's, I think it's a really good thing to do as a first step, but I think where people maybe go wrong with it, um, as it's gotten more popular over the years, actually to launch these kinds of info products, some people will sort of work on this info product in isolation and then put it out there and it never really takes off or goes anywhere because they haven't really like put in the time to sort of establish themselves as sort of this helpful, um, like authority on the subject matter, you might say. So like, Say I wanted to write a a course about Laravel test, like unit testing or something. So what I would recommend people do to do that is first, like start blogging a lot about testing Laravel applications with like not asking for anything in return. Mm-hmm. Just like putting out a lot of helpful info, putting out maybe free screencasts, free blog articles where you just like detail stuff you're learning about testing in Laravel. And then you sort of like over time, like over six months to a year, you know, you've sort of built up this reputation as sort of this helpful member of the community. Whereas if you just come out of nowhere with a course, which I've seen people do actually quite a bit, there's no like incentive for people to want to support you. You know what I mean? Um, Mm -hmm. So I think with Laravel, I had put in several years of like maintaining this open source project and giving stuff out and sort of trying to better people's like situation in PHP. And so then when I put out a book, people were like interested in it, you know? And, um, I think it did better than it would have. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that was, that was kind of a tangent about launching info products. <laughs> but yeah. That's kind of just how I got started. Yeah. I agree with that kind of practice of building up an audience first and not asking for anything in return. Yeah. And that's really the hard part. Yeah. 
I talked to quite a few people who have done that and and mm-hmm. built info products, and I think that's the pattern that most people follow. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's hard because it takes time, you know, and there's no way to like shortcut it. I think a lot of people want to sort of like shortcut that process or or try to skip it entirely, and it just doesn't work very well. With the more technical products that you ended up launching, the infrastructure products, mm-hmm. uh, you said you were kind of scratching your own itch on that. Were there other products you were building that you needed to deploy with those, or were those just a hobby at first and they turned into something profitable? Uh, the first one, like Laravel 4, is the server provisioning thing. A lot of it was probably spurred on by what we were doing at Userscape, um, mm-hmm. you know, where we had to provision servers quite a bit. And I would have to provision them a lot just for my open source stuff because people would say, like, you know, I'm having this problem on the latest release of Ubuntu with this PHP version and these PHP extensions installed. And so I would just spin up a server and sort of try to recreate it real quick. Um, mm-hmm. And doing that over and over was just like really time consuming. So sure. that's that's what sort of sent me down um, that path. And then from there, like it, it all just kind of fed on each other, like the zero downtime deployment thing. Now I had my own platform and I needed to deploy it without interrupting customers. And like, boom, now I have another sort of itch to scratch, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and then with, with cashier, you know, like I just knew I never wanted to write all of that boilerplate code for Forge <laughs> or Envoy ever again. And so mm-hmm. I put that together. What clue do you in that people might want to pay for those things? Well, I didn't know that, <laughs> you know, because, <laughs> um, and even before, when I launched Forge, like I remember talking with my wife, like, even if it just makes like a thousand dollars a month, like, Hey, you know, that's, a thousand more than I would have had. So like I seriously had no idea like what would happen because there wasn't a lot of precedent actually in the open source world that I can remember at the time of, of people doing this kind of thing where they were launching paid products around their open source framework. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just not a very common thing to do. So I didn't know how it would be received. Um, you know, would people look at it like the framework's just getting commercialized and it's not... Mm-hmm really doesn't feel like open source anymore. And so I was always very careful to sort of build these things that were optional add-ons to Laravel that just sort of supplemented the experience, but it didn't feel like DLC. You know what I mean? Where it's like (laughs) Mm -hmm. you buy this game and the game feels like crippled unless you spend like 60 more dollars buying this special Mm -hmm. add-on. So I didn't ever want it to feel like that. It was always like these very supplementary things, but you still had the full framework experience was always free, Mm -hmm. um, which I think helped you know sort of like people accept it a little easier maybe Mm -hmm. what are i'm I'm curious what your feelings on that commercializing open source viewpoint are like Mm -hmm. i mean do you feel like as someone who put a bunch of free work into your platform you had a kind of a right to build products around it or do you feel like people shouldn't build products around open source you know it's an interesting discussion like the whole open source monetization and sustainability thing um Mm -hmm. i think if they can, creators, you know, definitely should feel like they are allowed to build sort of products that capitalize on all the work they put into and helps them to make some money to support the project. It's also just sort of rare that you have an open source project where you can even do that. Um, so mm-hmm. like, for example, like in PHP, there's a library that just sort of abstracts file system operations across a variety of platforms. So like, of course, local file system operations, but also like S3. And it gives you sort of one API for working with either of those. And so I use that as an example because it's an open source library that is valuable and is used by a lot of people, but it's hard to build a product around that and make money. And so 
I think, sure, you have sort of these outliers like Laravel or Vue or React or Ember, where it's like the foundation of people's whole stack, basically. Mm-hmm. And those product, those type of projects are sort of have this privilege of being able to build products around them somehow, usually. And they can capitalize on it. But for most open source projects, they can't. And so I don't know like what the good answer is there in terms of like open source sustainability, because I think they a lot of times they do feel like they are should be compensated for a lot of the work they put in. And I sympathize with that, you know, but I just haven't seen a platform that works very like donations rarely work very well mm-hmm. at all. Um, and so it's hard, you know, like if I, if I had put all this work into Laravel and it's still to this day, never received really like any compensation for that. I do feel like I would be pretty bummed. Like I would, <laughs> Or like, I would feel like, I was owed something, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But it's hard. But at the same time, like I still struggle with that because the whole spirit of open source is that you're putting it out there sort of like out of goodwill, you know? Mm-hmm. And so to feel owed money for it is like, well, you shouldn't have made it open source in the first place <laughs> if you felt that way, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I still struggle with it like internally on what the correct viewpoint of it all is. Um, you know, I don't know, but it's, it's sort of weird because like this precedent has been set, you know, like, and there's no going back where mm-hmm. when I first built Laravel, it's not like I could charge for that up front, like Rails and ASP.NET itself and all these other frameworks, like they, the precedent had been set. So there's no option but to put it out as open source. So I don't know. That's a, it's a really interesting topic that could probably, <laughs> you could probably talk yeah. for hours about, but I don't know what the answer is. And I think like, it's only going to get worse, you know, and maybe there will be some tipping point to where there's, you know, open source maintainers as a whole are just sort of fed up with Mm -hmm. sort of the slave labor mentality that's kind of permeates the ecosystem right now, because, you know, it it goes, go back to what we talked about earlier, where negative comments sort of drown out positive comments. But like, you know, if a project doesn't get updated for like seven or 14 days, you know, you'll have people coming on GitHub, like, is this abandoned? know should i should i use a different library now where are you Mm -hmm. and so those people even though i think those are probably in the minority um you know they sound really loud when they're there's two or three of them talking to you on Mm -hmm. twitter or github so i don't know man that's an interesting topic and i'll be curious curious myself to see where it goes you know over the next five or ten years because i think it is getting worse and you know people are getting burned out on their open source projects a lot and yeah i don't know yeah Definitely. I mean, it's a lot of work and, and it's not always, uh, the right application of someone's time, especially if they want to have like work-life balance or they, uh, you know, have to support themselves. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Taylor, one thing I ask everyone that comes on my podcast to share is kind of something that they're uncomfortable with, or they would describe themselves as bad at. And, and the reasoning is, you know, there are a significant number of people that follow your career and follow you as a developer and might, have an image of you that is not totally accurate. And in order to kind of dispel that maybe myth, maybe make you a little more human, um, would you mind sharing mm-hmm. something that you consider yourself to be bad at? Well, I can think of a couple of things really. Um, like I still think I'm pretty bad at letting negative comments like not affect me. Um, mm-hmm. They really do like affect me a lot. Um, some days worse than others. And it's hard not to let that like bleed over like outside of work too, where you're just like feel bummed. Uh, about something bad you've heard. And another thing like I think people maybe have a misconception of is like 
when you see open source software, like you don't realize that it doesn't come out like that the first time. Like my code sucks, like on the first like iteration, you know, like I'm Mm -hmm. not good at just like cranking out perfect quality code on like the first pass and all of that. And I think that a lot of what you see in Laravel is stuff that's been iterated over, you know, dozens of times Mm -hmm. and me asking friends about. And so, you know, like, I'm not really, I don't consider myself a particularly like talented programmer, really. I just think that the important thing is putting in some, you know, the time and, and iterating over and refining your work and, you know, just making it the best you can. But mm-hmm. a lot of it's just me, you know, banging my head against the wall until like I find something that feels, you know, somewhat decent. So I think those two things, you know, just like letting, being able to, get better at managing negative feedback is something I'd like to improve on. And then just sort of dispelling the notion that sort of I'm cranking out impeccable code all the time (laughs) on the first pass, because that's definitely not the case. And Mm -hmm. I've thrown away a lot of code. That's just like crap, Mm -hmm. you know, but I don't know. Those are two things that come to mind. Yeah. I I think a lot of people feel actually I had a, a meetup I went to on Saturday and someone asked me about like contributing to open source and, and like feeling bad when they go look at other people's open source stuff because it's so good. And then Mm. the, the thing is if you go look at rails or Laravel or Django or any of these other huge frameworks, express, whatever it is at its current state and size, there have been so many people contributing to it and working on it. Like it's been refined. Um, But if you go back and they get history and look at the first six months of that project, it will make you feel a lot better. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's advice I give to a lot of people who are intimidated by open source is like, look at the first six months of that project and then go out and find projects that are in that state. Don't try to contribute to the biggest web framework because, yeah. you know, you may not be able to contribute if you're a beginner. Um, and if you can't, then you might feel bad about yourself. And that's that's not fair because you're comparing yourself against thousands of programmers, not against one or two. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's good advice. Awesome. Well, Taylor, I really appreciated hearing your story and hearing kind of your opinions on open source and building a career in open source. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's fun. Thanks for listening to devpath.fm. Want to ask a question? Send an email to jacob at devpath.fm.